invite you to open your Bibles to the book of James. God's word comes to us from James 1, and I had marked in the bulletin James 1, verses 2 to 18. Uh, I'm going to be focusing on just some of those verses that relate to uh, trials and sufferings. The section on wisdom that James speaks about, we are going to pass. So verses 5 to uh, 11 will pass over, but we will be focusing on James 1, verses 2 to 4, and then verses 12 to 18. Hear now God's awesome and holy and good word. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then skipping to verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This has been the reading of God's word. Well, I wonder if you have ever been persistently in a trial that you just did not understand. Over and over and over again, you asked yourself, God, why is this still happening? God, why have you called me into this circumstance? Lord, why have you called me into the particular complexities of this marriage? Or why are you leading me through these hard moments of raising children? Lord, why is life in the church sometimes so complex and difficult? I had a very distinct memory recently of listening to a sermon where a pastor was driving home the reality of the fact that uh, God leads us into circumstances that cause great anxiety sometimes. Uh, he is not, as we'll see tonight, the cause of any sin, um, but he does bring us into circumstances like this. And I remember at different uh, times in my life as a Christian and now also as a pastor thinking, Lord, when does the break come? Uh, when, when will you pause in bringing us, bringing me into trial? Uh, when will I get a moment for this to be easier? Uh, and we'll see tonight the reality that God doesn't uh, anticipate, he doesn't teach us to expect an easy life, a life free of trials, uh, times where we're just kind of soaring in comfort and uh, joy in this life, where life just seems to be uh, predictable and easy and as we expected. And I had to see for myself, and I hope I can bring God's word to bear on you as well, that I was, I was forgetting very basic New Testament teaching on trials. Uh, I was lacking joy even in the midst of trials because I didn't see that God was wanting to work uh, joy and the gospel into my heart in the midst of trials. And so we'll look at uh, three things from the book of James chapter 1 this evening. The why of trials, 
where are they taking us, the why, the purpose, or the end of trials, the source of trials, and specifically when we're, we are the cause of our own trials and temptation, and then finally knowing the heart of God as our Father through our suffering. So the why of trials, if you're writing notes tonight, the why of trials, uh, wh- wh- what's the purpose, where are they taking us, the source of trials, uh, what is it like when we are the cause of our own trials and temptation, and then knowing the heart of God as our Father through our sufferings. Well, you notice right off the bat in verse 2 that James wants to tell us to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, in his little commentary on the book of James, very helpfully points out the fact that James doesn't tell us that our trials are joyful. He doesn't say your trials will be enjoyable or they will directly be joy, but to count your trials as joy, my brothers. Uh, James is far too much a realist to say that our trials in in and of themselves are joy. He knows the agony of sleepless nights. He knows what it's like to be up at two in the morning asking, God, why are you doing this? Where are you in the midst of this? He knows that we need to reckon our trials as that which uh, is joyful because of what they are Producing. What were some of the trials specifically? I want to be concrete with what the, the audience that was hearing this letter would have been facing. What were some of the concrete things that the book of James speaks about that were the trials that these dispersed Christians all over the world were facing? Well, some were on the receiving end of very destructive partiality, as chapter 2 tells us. Uh, they would come to church, uh, maybe in a service like this, and the wealthy would be in one place and the poor would be in another place and people would be picked out uh, because of a partial reading of each other, a judgment of each other, uh, and they had to face day after day this kind of partiality, the dividing of Christians into different groups and preferring one group over another. I mean, imagine how difficult that would be as a Christian in the early church uh, to over and over uh, face that kind of trial. Some were feeling the destructive effects of the tongue uh, some were, were under the, the destructive influence of uh, the speaking of others. We see in chapter 3 that the tongue is a great evil, according to the book of James. And it uh, can, like a spark, burn down a whole forest. Uh, reports were probably spreading in the church. And members were being damaged and hurt because of things that were said. Or there were quarrels. Uh, chapter 4 very helpfully um, uh, helps us understand fights and quarrels in the church. What causes fights? What causes quarrels? Is it not your uh, desires that are at war within you? Uh, the trials that the, those who were uh, hearing this letter were difficult trials. They were complex things uh, to try to face, uh, whether it was partiality or uh, the effect of the tongue or fights and quarrels that were eating up the peace and the, the joy of the church And yet James says to all of these things, Dear brothers, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. Uh, He has that word various, a variety of things, and he encompasses all kinds of things. So how is the Lord addressing your heart tonight? What, What kind of trial has he called you into? And is he saying to you, Dear brother tonight, dear sister, count this thing as joy. When you face this, count this thing as producing joy. And again, the only reason James can tell us this evening to count these kind of horrible, difficult circumstances as joy is because what it produces in our hearts. Acute suffering and difficulty, according to this passage, 
leads to the testing of our faith, and it says, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, lacking nothing. If you're like me, you would rather come to the uh, testing of your faith or to endurance an easier way. You would rather that God uh, bring you to a growth in holiness and sanctification some easier way, not to have to face uh, the disorienting hardship of trials in this life. You wish that there could be some other way to get around it. We'd like to be zapped with endurance, uh, but God says it doesn't happen that way. He always calls us to walk the hard road, to wade into the difficult waters of trials because he loves us, because he wants us to endure in our faith, because he wants us to come to steadfastness and and bring a hope to its completion in perfection. It's just a common doctrine. This is not a unique doctrine in the New Testament. It's a very, very common thing that different authors of the New Testament will say. So let me give you a sampling of how this works. 2 Corinthians 1.6, Paul will say to the Corinthians, If we are distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance uh, of the same sufferings we suffer. So the Apostle Paul can say, I am grieved with my suffering and I'm anticipating that you are going to have to suffer similar things at me and this will produce in you endurance. Or notice in the midst of his great sufferings as an apostle, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 4, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. In purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love. Dear Christians, tonight God brings you into the school of difficult trials because he wants you to be able to bear up over time and hold fast to him in endurance and have your faith tested and purged and cleansed and purified so that you can grow as a believer. Or Romans 5, very classically, beginning in verse 3, Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Pause for a second and think about that. We rejoice, just like James says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. When you pass through trials, you are moment by moment, day by day, adding your tolerance for the drip, drip, drip of uh, the, the weight of having to bear up under the trials of this present life. Uh, I've appreciated a movie that my kids enjoy and sing the songs all the time. It's called Encanto. And one of the sisters in this story is uh, someone who has this, uh, the, it's a family that has kind of these magical abilities, all except for one sister. And one of the sisters sings this song about the pressure that she goes through. She has the, the supernatural magical ability to, to bear up under great, great pressure. She sings pressure like a drip, 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 and it won't let go. Pressure like a tick, 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 and it's ready to blow. Uh, give it to me, she's saying, your sister, your sister's stronger. See if she can hang on a little longer. Who am I if I can't carry it all? Uh, as Christians, we are not called to carry these sufferings on our own. We're not called to endure suffering and be overcome by this on our own. If you are facing a trial that's leading you to depression or loneliness or despair, uh, please don't bear that on your own. Uh, go and find other believers. Uh, talk to your elders, your deacons, and your pastor and tell them, I am under an acute trial that I can't face on my own. But God does work endurance in our lives 
over time, slowly, and gives us the ability to hold on day by day such that we will be perfected, uh, as it says, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and lacking in nothing. I mean, think about the Christians that you respect the most. Isn't it uh, believers that you've seen face just the most difficult, disorienting realities? Maybe death at an uncertain time or cancer struck them and they faced the trial and they said, God loved me in this. I didn't understand it at the time. But it's because he loves me that he brought me through various kinds of trials and various kinds of grief. So to summarize, count your, your, your trials, dear Christians, as joy because you know they're producing steadfastness, the ability to bear up gradually over time under great difficulty. And God is working perfection in you through this. And verse 12 then kind of summarizes the argument. I think James is casting back to verses 2, 3, and 4 when he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, because he, when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Trials produce poise and ballast in your life such that you can face uh, future difficulties with a, a more rich and deeper faith than what you had before. And this is God's school to train you to be able to rejoice in the midst of suffering. I'm saying something similar in the book of Revelation. The Apostle John says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer, Revelation 2. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. This is what trials are producing in you. They're preparing eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison and they're bringing you uh, to that point where God will say well done good and faithful servant and give you the crown of life so that's the the purpose of God that's the end and the the trajectory that your trials uh, as you face them and walk through them and you grow in endurance and steadfastness that's why God is doing this in your Life, But what about trials and temptations that are our fault? James goes to that secondly here. The source, where do temptations and sinful uh, things come from in our lives? This is our second point tonight, verses 13 to 15. Uh, as Reformed Christians, you have probably heard a lot about the sovereignty of God. Uh, all things work together for the good of those who love him. Uh, but sometimes, uh, James is trying to point us to the reality as he he says in uh, verse 13 and following, Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Sometimes we use God's sovereignty to excuse our sin, James is saying. Uh, Westminster Confession 5, four verse, uh, 5, section 4 says, The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that it extends even to the first fall and other, all other sins of angels and men. There's not one moment in all of creation that God doesn't have providential control over. Um, but when we sin, we have to also confess that this is not God's initiative and fault. We have to go on to confess. Sinfulness proceeds only from the creature, not from God, who being most holy and righteous... Neither is nor he can be the author or approver of sin. James tells us when our sufferings are because of our own sinfulness, we can't cast the blame on God. We can't use God's providence to say, you did this. 
you put me in a situation. Uh, we can pray, lead us not into temptation, uh, but we are not uh, accusing God of our sin. And unfortunately, this strategy, right, of saying, God, you put me in a situation where I lusted, or you put me in a situation where I uh, fell into this sin, this strategy of accusing God, of blaming God for our sinfulness, is old as we are. Do you remember in the garden, Adam and Eve have been created, God has loved this new couple and set them in the midst of the garden, and he said, eat all the trees you want, right? They are all good, and for you to be uh, enjoying them, there's just one that you can't eat. And Adam and Eve disregard what God say, and they listen to the voice of Satan, and they take the fruit, and they steal it, and they eat it, and then God comes looking for them, and he says, what have you done? Have you eaten what I told you not to eat? And what does Adam do? The first words of his mouth, he says, it's because of you. You gave me this woman who gave me this fruit. It's not my fault. It's your fault, God. And James says, we can't let ourselves off the hook when we sin. We can't blame God for our temptation. God is so pure and holy and righteous that sin and temptation never are authored by him. He does not tempt anyone, and he is not himself tempted with evil. And then James helps us to understand the way that sin uh, develops in our hearts. If you are captivated with a ensnaring, uh, difficult sin to overcome, he wants you to hear tonight the anatomy and the progression of how sin, sin develops in our hearts. Each person is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. In our modern kind of American context, your desires are necessarily good. The project of our kind of new humanity in this modern age is to seek who you really are inside, go down deep into the wells of your heart, discover who you are in your identity, and then project that to everyone else. And your most true self is deep hidden down in the wells of your heart, and whatever you are inside is the best part of you. This is why Uh, discovering your sexuality or discovering who you are is assumed to be the best, most authentic aspect of who you are deep down inside. But the Bible doesn't describe things this way. When you go deeper down into your heart, the Bible says you descend into deeper, darker wells of sinful desires. Jeremiah tells us, as you, I'm sure, have read, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And who can know it. When we go deeper down into our hearts and we read our hearts through the lens of God's word, we find a deceptive and sinful and evil desires that are destructive to our lives as believers. And so we need the Bible to clarify things for us because experience seems to say that sin is sweet on the front end. It tastes so good to do certain things that are wrong. And then James says, but it gives birth ultimately to death. You remember David, right, when he perceived and he saw this beautiful woman who was bathing on the top of another building, and he started to craft a plan of how he could have her and take her. And on the front end, that desire seems so good, it seems so natural to satisfy his lustful desire for him. And yet he schemed and he crafted, and his desire gave birth 
to sin, and when it fully was grown, it gave birth to death. And you remember the death that came in the midst of and because of his sinfulness. Uriah, this great general in his army, he schemes to strike down in the midst of his battles. And the young boy that he and Bathsheba conceive bears, um, in some sense, the natural consequences of his sin. It felt so good in the moment for David to pursue his sinful desire, and it only led to death. Um, If you're younger, I think if you're older, you get a sense of the truth of that. If you're younger, I would just encourage you tonight to reflect on this truth. Even in the book of Proverbs, the father says to his son, when you are seeking out sexual pleasure, for instance, it seems so good on the front end, and yet it always leads to shame and death on the back end. The the back end of woman folly, the back part of her home, is a a graveyard full of dead bodies. Don't pursue sin sinful temptations. They always lead to death. They always deceive you and ultimately lead to your destruction. This is not the last word, thankfully, that James leads us, leaves us with tonight. Uh, he doesn't only want to tell us about the nature of our own sinful desires and the destructive aspect of them, but he wants you to know the good heart of your father tonight. He wants you to be motivated to turn away from those things because you have a loving Father who knows you and who has given every good and perfect gift. And I want us to close reflecting on this section, verses 16 to 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Notice the contrast between how our death and our scheming to accomplish our own sinful desires leads to death. There's this kind of gestational cycle and then death that comes from sin. But notice the contrast of your father. Every good gift comes from him, it says, who is the father of lights. And by his own will, he's begotten you by the word of truth. If sin was like a baby that was conceived and ultimately leads to death, God as our father has given birth to us by the word of truth. It was God's eternal plan to have a people for himself, to know each of your names, the ones who have trusted in Jesus. It was the will of the Father to beget you, to, to uh, turn you, re- to regenerate your heart, and to bring you into a fellowship with him. Notice all the, the family language in the passage. Do not be deceived, beloved brothers. Every good gift comes from your father he has brought you forth he has begotten you by the word of truth you're welcomed into this whole family environment as a christian by the word of truth and i want to conclude just asking what is this what is this phrase what does it mean the word of truth that has begotten us into this new family? How does God take a dead people, dead in their trespasses and sins, focused on only accomplishing, seeking their own desires, and being satisfied with who they are in their own way? How does God find miserable sinners and pursue them and rescue them and draw them to himself? 
see the best gift, the greatest gift, who came down from above was the Son of God, who though he loved everything righteous, and though Jesus was the captain of God's armies, he was dressed in a shameful purple robe, and he was mocked and he was beaten for us. The word of truth speaks about the gospel of Christ that is the means by which that God brings us into this new relationship. Where was Jesus' crown of life at the end of his life? The only crown that Jesus had in this life was a crown of thorns that he bore for us and for our salvation. And so the most loved son of the Father is sent to the cruel crucifixion that you deserve to face. The one who never schemed to try to accomplish his desires, who never pursued any wicked goal in his heart, sets his face to Jerusalem and bears what you deserved. So that when you ask yourself at 3 p.m. on a Wednesday afternoon, God, why are you sending me into this trial? Why do I have to face this again? Why do you call me to this long road of endurance? Jesus faced what you deserved on a cross for your sin, for our salvation. So you never have to ask, God, are you with me in this? Are you walking this road with me? Adam and Eve even were not judged in the garden and struck down the day that they sinned. They found mercy, even though they had pursued this sinful desire, and they were clothed with the skins of animals, pointing forward to the time when Jesus would be killed and then cover his people. And the word of truth actually has power to set you free from your sin as well, to give you new desires to enable you to face that drip, drip, drip of difficulty, of pain and suffering that never stops. It's only the word of truth in the gospel, dear Christian, tonight that can take an undeserving child of wrath and make them one treasured and accepted and loved by God as our Father who has begotten us by the word of truth, that we would be a kind of first Fruit. So see the crown of blessing that you are anticipating in the future. Live for what you have in the future. Don't live for what you can find and be satisfied in now. And know that Jesus wore the crown of thorns so that you could one day enjoy the crown of glory and life that's promised to those who love Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the word of truth, the gospel that is able to save us, Lord. We do uh, pray that those who are suffering tonight, Lord, those who are struggling to understand their circumstances, would be able to, even through your word tonight, 
count it all joy when they face trials of various kinds, knowing that endurance is being created in their hearts and character and steadfastness, which will bring us, Lord, to completion. Lord, you've begotten us by the word of truth to be your first fruits, Lord. And we ask that the reality of Jesus' love for us and the compassion that you have for us as your dearly loved sons and daughters would free us, Lord, from this natural desire, sinful desire, to pursue our sins or to find our identity in anything in this world that's passing. Lord, I pray for each person that came tonight that you would uh, transform us, Lord, that we would go home uh, not the same way that we came, that you would uh, enable us to live these realities as Christians, that we would not um, go through the motions, but would, uh, would rejoice in our sufferings and our trials, knowing, Lord, that you are at work in them, that you promise to draw us through them to yourself in eternal glory, Lord. And we will give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.